Lord, there are dozens of times in Scripture where we're told to bless the Lord. And we want to start by thanking you that we have a blessable God. There's so many other um, counterfeits out there that are angry and fickle and just mean-spirited. And I, I understand because when man makes something, he makes it in his own image, and it's going to be fickle and broken and sinful and all the things that make man needy for a real God that you are, for the real God you are. And we seek your face, God, tonight, and we want to bless you. We want to bless you with our attitudes and our seeking you in your word. And we want to bless you, Lord, by seeking to take hold of the warnings we see in other people's lives when we see somebody really do something stupid or hurtful or in some way painful to you, Lord. We want to make a note, avoid that, don't do that. And if, Lord, we could crawl into the mindset as well as the methodology as we will tonight, Lord, please let us take the warning starkly as you told us in Romans 15 that whatever was written before was written for our learning. But it also says that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures would find hope. And Lord, we want to find hope in this text as well. We want to find patience and comfort in this scripture, even if it is a scripture highlighting an individual who was really a betrayer and one of the most prominent and profound betrayers in all of scripture. So Lord, no doubt, the more we see somebody for just nasty, awful, and bad, the more, God, we want to avoid behaving like them. So tonight, Lord, do your work. And I pray, Lord, that you would open up our hearts, you would open up our minds, and God, that you would tonight open up, Lord, your scripture in such a way that we are captivated, we are drawn in, that we actually have fun, but also, Lord, that we genuinely take to heart what we need to take to heart here. Lord, you've made clear that we won't, we're not building our houses on the rock by simply listening. James has made clear that we would deceive ourselves to assume that we're okay by just hearing the word, but we are challenged to do what it says. Now, to do what it says doesn't mean watch somebody do something stupid and then follow in its footsteps, but rather to take its exhortations, to take its warnings. And so we want to do that tonight. So Lord, let us be real, real tonight. Real with you, real with ourselves. Have your way now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What say tonight is it would any please... Don't just believe me. Never just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible be your authority. Always test all things by the word of God. Now, having said that, we are, in essence, looking at the life of a man named Absalom. Absalom is the third son to David. Uh, the first son of David, which seems clear and evident, is a guy named Amnon, who has been, in essence, killed by Absalom. Absalom kills his brother because he sees, in essence, he becomes aware that his brother has raped his sister. That is really messed up, and we can develop it in a lot of ways uh, in context, but it's fundamental first and foremost we recognize that Absalom tonight will become the betrayer. In all of the Old Testament... There is no one more profoundly betrayer than Absalom. When his brother, who is half-brother, they have the same dad, that's David, but different mothers, rapes his sister, his full sister, Amnon takes the situation into his own hands and kills his brother. And then flees to a place called Geshur. 
Geshur, by the way, today would be, in essence, the western area of Syria. Uh, the, the reason he goes to Geshur is because the king of Geshur is his grandfather. His mother is Ma'aka. Ma'aka means torment or torture. With all due respect, I don't care how fine she is with a name like torture, I ain't going there. Anyways, with that, he, mom torture is the princess of Geshur, so when Absalom flees, he just flees to grandpa's house. Now, if you get the idea that Absalom has fled to his grandfather's house, who happens to be the king of, in essence, an enemy country, you kind of get the idea that Absalom is not sort of living on the streets, begging for a few tuppins, looking to figure out how he's going to fill a cup. He's gone from one palace to another. And it is important to note that he has been sought for. David, in essence, has been duped by his commander, Joab, to say, you know, in, I mean, there's a story very much like when he gets busted with Bathsheba. And, and in that then, David, recognizing somehow in this story that he's kind of, kind of been pinned against the wall and he has to bring his son back, he brings his son back from Geshur, but he brings his son back who is unrepentant, who is unconcerned and has absolutely no consciousness that he's done anything wrong. In the eyes of Absalom, everything he's done has been justifiable and been completely right, even though it was not his position to do so. Now, in Second Samuel chapter 14, verse 24 in review, David the king says, Let him return to his own house, but don't let him see my face. Absalom returned to his own house, which appears not to be the king's house, but he did not see the king's face. Absalom wanted restoration without repentance. Convinced that he was still right in all that he did, Absalom was sought for, chased after, brought in, but he was brought in, hear me please, on Absalom's terms. And there's a problem here. We can look at this from a handful of perspectives. First of all, we're going to look at it from the perspective, in essence, again, the motive and methodology of Absalom, the betrayer. And we'll see that here and then in the beginning of the next chapter. We can look at it from the perspective of a person that we want to see come to know Jesus and how desperate we want to see them brought in. Or a person that in some way has done something to hurt others and the desire to see them restored. But we can also look at it from the standpoint, if we're going to be honest, there is enough Absalom in each of us to recognize the need for God to kill the old man that a new one would arise in his resurrection. Well, with that in mind, this is how it starts. So someone's offended you or they've done something and they've clearly blown it. And the desire, of course, because we don't want to be those Christians that seem stereotypical, that eat their weak and you know, are casting stones simply because someone has done something, when we recognize ourselves as sinners as well. The real question is, are they really wanting to be restored with genuine repentance? Or are they, like Absalom, in a place where they really may have, okay, yeah, I guess technically I've done something wrong, but I don't see why you're making such a big deal about it. Because the danger is, David, in his love for Absalom, is seeking to restore Absalom without a standard of righteousness. And unfortunately, when that happens, you are setting yourself up to get stabbed in the back. 
And there's the danger. Now, for what it's worth, there are places in Scripture that really do speak about repentance. And I recognize that there is this desire for us to see people restored so greatly that we will compromise the things that we would com- that we would compromise almost anything just to see them brought back and you you say well if i don't chase after them if i don't go after them if i don't radically pursue them well then they'll be lost but i need to let you know if they're not willing to repent in your pursuit you've already lost them it says this, by the way, for what it's, and it's worth a great deal. I shouldn't just say for what it's worth. There's a situation in 1 Corinthians. Paul writes a letter and he says something pretty, he says a, a lot of really heavy, you know, basically, the church has been brought to him with this idea. Here are the symptoms of our church at this particular moment. And here's a list of questions. Uh, and, you know, we have several issues, you know, questions for Pastor Paul. The first six chapters of 1 Corinthians, Paul responds to these symptoms and he gives a diagnosis. The symptoms were in the simple sense. There were divisions. They were arguing with each other over really stupid things. And then there was this issue about people suing each other. Christians suing other Christians. And then there was this issue of this guy sleeping with his mom. Now, it does say with his father's wife. So that's simple math. Whether that's his stepmom or his, his mom, what's clear is that it's still not right. Paul's conclusion, if you will, Dr. Paul gives the conclusion, you guys are carnal. He doesn't doubt they're saved. He doesn't say you guys aren't saved because he, doesn't, he can't make that appraisal, but he can make this appraisal. He can say, you guys, though you've made a claim to Christ, you are acting just like the world and you're really not trying to look like Jesus. You are not pursuing holiness in the sense of being conformed to Christ's image. You're still trying to look like the rest of the world. He goes, here's the crazy part. You're topping them. He says, you know, what this guy is doing sexually is even stuff that most unbelievers wouldn't do. He goes, you guys are actually worse than the world by doing this. And in the simplest sense, and let me make it clear, God makes clear we are told to be tolerant and intolerant. To tolerate people's personalities, but to be intolerant to sin. It's interesting how the church has got that backwards. It seems like we'll tolerate each other's sin and call ourselves tolerant, but on the other side of it, we'll have a real problem with people because they rub us the wrong way. And God says that is completely backwards. The idea of suing people was the idea that they were intolerant, but they were claiming to be loving. The spiritual experience in the church had turned into a circus, but Paul's response about this guy with his mom is he says, hand him over to Satan that his body would be burned, but his soul would be spared in the day of judgment. Now, could you get a harsher judgment than that? How do you hand a guy over to Satan? Do you, you know, draw a pentagram on the ground, light some candles, spin around naked for a little bit, and then hope that the guy shows up and hand him over? Well, in the simplest sense, you boot him out of the church. You say, hey, look it. What's clear is you're trying to play both sides. You're trying to play the side of get everything you can from the world, but you're also trying to play the side of get everything you can from God. Well, you can't really have both, so why don't you just try to get everything from the world, and when you're sick of that, let's then come back. But understand, Paul's purpose in that was not to permanently just rid the guy. It was to get that guy to where he realizes how stupid what he's chasing after is, so he would actually be restored. Now, what's beautiful is 
we don't just have 1 Corinthians, we have 2 Corinthians. And in 2 Corinthians, what's clear is this guy was handed out. Could you imagine somebody, can you imagine us getting a letter from someone that we really respected spiritually that said, you know what, kick that person out of the church. Which one of us would think that that was a godly decision, regardless of what they were doing? But the purpose was restoration. But restoration cannot happen without repentance. So Paul tells us this, as this person clearly has repented and come back repentant. He tells us this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9, Now I rejoice, not that I made you sorry, but rather that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Now that tells you it's just because a person's sorry doesn't mean it's a good kind of sorrow. You could be sorry, but in your sorry, in your sorrow, you could be consumed with yourself, and in being consumed with yourself, it'll produce death. We see that with Judas. On the other side of it, a sorrow that makes you actually angry at the sin causes you to repent. And then listen to this, what he says after that. He says in verse 11 of that same text, For observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner. Remember that godly sorrow produces repentance. What diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourself, what indignation, what fear, what what, what vehement desire, what zeal, and what vindication. In all these things, you proved yourself to be clear in this matter. Now what he tells us is, this is what real repentance looks like. Real repentance, in essence, births a diligence to want to get away from it. It produces a clearing, in other words, a desire to be genuinely right with God and not just right in the eyes of other people. Indignation. Indignation means you actually look at your sin and look at it as disgusting and rotten and horrible. Fear means that you actually recognize yourself small and these things big, including the God who can forgive. Vehement desire, zeal, and then ultimately vindication, a desire to make it right. A desire to make it right does not put you in the place to make the rules. You cannot demand or be entitled and actually have proper vindication because you realize humility comes part and parcel with genuine repentance. Now, what's clear is Paul looked at this and he goes, this is what I'm looking at when I look at somebody that says they're repentant. Do I see them really acting in a manner that hates the sin they're leaving and wants to do whatever is necessary to get that out of their lives, to put in barriers and safeguards so that it doesn't go back to that? And then in humility, seek to make right every person I've wronged by doing so. Now, that's a very different story. Back in our situation, back here in Second Samuel, we have a guy who has done none of those things. He went from leaving, he, went, he basically went and he went from lying to his dad about what he was going to do to killing his brother to fleeing to another palace where he was living large to be retrieved back to go back to his own house. And in that, he has not seen his dad because his dad still doesn't know what in the world to do. Now, without focusing on David for a moment, let me just say this is how it starts as we see the motive behind this Absalom. It starts with a simple word, and that's ego. It becomes all about you. In Absalom's situation, 
His standard was his standard. Justification was his justification. Righteousness was his righteousness. Interesting, either you make yourself right, either through definition or through whatever you've decided to perform, or Jesus makes you right. The most amazing thing to me is that anyone could look at a Christian and say that they're self-righteous. We're the only people on the planet who aren't. Because I can't make me righteous. I can't just pray enough and give enough and do enough and, and teach enough or study or memorize enough or make enough trips or whatever and fast enough. Because all of that stuff is about you making yourself righteous, which is self-righteousness. On the other side of it, I'm Jesus righteous. The only thing that made me right was the one who died on the cross. Somebody got beat to death, tortured to death, because that was what my sin rightly deserved, and he chose it. So in this situation, this is where we start. The two basic things, and we're going to see that this plays out in every case, is the first is ego. It's got to become all about you. In an Absalom situation, he's making the rules, he's setting the standards, he's making all of the boundaries, every, every essence, every stipulation becomes in essence his. And then we read this in 25. Now, in Israel there was no one who was praised as much as Absalom for his good looks. So guess what? You want to really, you want to make an ego, a person that's an egotist worse? Praise him. It says, from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish on the guy. This was as perfect a specimen of manhood as you're going to find. This is, and here's the ironic thing to me, or the odd thing, is that the one symbol of his glory was his hair. It doesn't say, and his pecs. He could do that dance thing. You know, we can make him go left, right, left, right, and then pop the berry, and you, know, you throw it out, and he shoots it back. He doesn't say that. It doesn't say, oh, man, you should see this guy's legs. I mean, this guy's legs were just, they were like marble pillars. Solomon will speak that, by the way, when he writes a song about a girl in love with the king and says, oh, king, your legs are like, like most rappers. They write about how women think that they're the thing. Solomon was doing the same. Now, but it doesn't say that. It doesn't say that the guy was ripped or that he was, but it also doesn't say that he was known for his character. It doesn't say that he was known for his kindness. It says he was known for his hair. And by the way, what we're going to find is the very idiom of his glory becomes his own downfall to his death. That's a spoiler alert. It says in verse 26, that when they cut the hair on his head, of his head, at the end of each year, because it was too heavy on him, because it was heavy on him, when they cut it, it weighed the hair, they weighed the hair. First of all, who does that? Who cuts your hair and then weighs it? That tells you there's something remarkable about it. And it says, and, and, and see, at 200 shekels, according to the king's standard. Now, I don't know how many of you have weighed anything and gone, wow, that's like 200 shekels. Well, let me give it to you this way. 200 shekels in the simplest sense is about three kilos, or if you will, Roughly about six pounds, five, six, six and a half pounds. Now, I did a little bit of investigation on this because the average person who has a full head of hair, and I'm looking around, some of us don't, uh, is, has about 100,000 hairs, which means if you put 10 people in a room, that's a million hairs. Now, I, and if I, let's just say the average length of a person, let's say, was about 10 centimeters. We're obviously ignoring my daughter's hair, which is about 35 miles. Uh, and if I were to do all of that and add it all together, of a person who had about 10 centimeters for all of their hair was common length, they took the bowl and did the whole thing, that would weigh somewhere just about three-quarters to two-thirds a kilo. 
At most, if they're really with all of the product they put in there, maybe it's about a kilo. That's all the hair on your head for a person with longer hair. So imagine, if you will, at the end of the year, he gets his hair cut. Now, not shaved, but he gets it cut. And it weighs as much as all of the hair on three people's heads. That's a lot of hair. And he's kind of known for this. And I just find it interesting that, in essence, the one thing I would guess is you could probably recognize Absalom from afar. I mean, there's a lot of things. A big guy you kind of don't notice. You know what I mean? Unless they're inordinately something. But a guy that has a whole lot of just giant chunky head full of hair, more than likely you're like, well, there's Absalom. Take a look. There he is. And it says in verse 27 that to Absalom were born three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. By the way, the name of his sister. She was a woman of beautiful appearance. Now, listen closely, please. It tells us here that Absalom had sons. How many sons does he have here? Three. That's pretty simple math, right? I mean, that's that's, that's a simple question right out of Scripture. How many sons did Absalom have here? Three. Interesting as it is, later on we'll find, not tonight, but later in the text, that Absalom sets up a pillar in the valley of the kings because he has no heir. How does that work? If the guy's got three sons, you would think that's three heirs. The only thing I can say is when a man is an egotist and everything is about him, Anything that kind of looks like him is a threat. Consider that. It says that Absalom dwelt two full years in Jerusalem. He had dwelt three, by the way, in Geshur. And he didn't see the king's face. Therefore, Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king. Stop. Don't miss this. Joab is the commander. He's the commander of David's army. Now get this. Absalom is a son of David. And he is calling the commander of the army to go talk to his dad. Well, that tells me two things. One thing is it tells us that somehow Absalom doesn't seem to be entirely interested in the idea of having a son, a father-son relationship, or he could have gone himself. He actually could have gone himself as a son. But the other thing is, what gives, and you would say, well, maybe he was just being humble. If he was being humble, what made him think he had the right to boss around the commander of the army and tell him, go talk to my dad? And that tells me the second thing of our two in regards to motive. And that's not just ego, but it is entitlement. You want to create an Absalom in any one of us. It's simple. Just make those two things. That's the simple recipe. Ego plus entitlement Add a little bit of water, stir, let it rise on its own, and lo and behold, rinse and repeat, you have an Absalom. Now, all entitlement means is you feel that you've got it coming to you. You have a right. Absalom is not considering himself a son of the king, but rather choosing to go through an intermediary like all who are strangers to the king, but he is operating in the entitlements of one. So if you think about it, in truth, He thinks himself above the king. His rulership, his rules don't apply to him anymore. And because of that, those who serve the king are therefore below him. I try to talk to somebody about Jesus and they're like, they have to, God has to accept me for who I am. And I'm like, well, don't you think that's fair that you have to do the same? You have to accept God for who he is? Or exactly who's the Lord in this relationship? So twice, he is in essence told Joab, Joab, he sent his servants, 
That's interesting. The guy goes back, he gets his house back, and he gets a bunch of servants back. And he tells the servants, the ones who, by the way, set up the whole killing of his brother in the first place. And now you get it. These servants, he's like, no, go tell Joab to talk to my dad. They come back, Joab isn't going to do it. He says, well, go tell him again. Yep, Joab's not answering. So this is what he says in verse 30. So he said to his servants, see, Joab's field is near mine. And he has, a barley, he, has, he has barley there, so go and do what any reasonable neighbor would do. Set it on fire. Now that tells you where this guy is. And Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Now, any of you think at a point like this that this kid has is, is actually got a vehemence to clear himself? A desire to be actually uh, an indignation towards his sin? A humility that is birthed from genuine repentance? Do you see any of that in Absalom at this moment? What I see is a guy who came back on his own terms, feels like he's gotten away with murder, kind of has, and then in that, kind of setting up, and he's like, well, what's the next thing? Well, you know, if my dad is not going to take me now for who I am, I'm going to start making noise about it. Set his field on fire. By the way, it does work for Joab, verse 31. Joab arose and came to Absalom's house and said to him, why have your servants set my field on fire? I guess that doesn't happen every day. Verse 32, Absalom answered Joab, look. That tells you his attitude. I sent to you saying, come here so that I may send you to the king and say, why have I come from Geshur? It would have been better for me to be there still. If Absalom was really seeking an act of humility in this, he certainly would have set the, he would not have set the field on fire. He would have not demanded Joab go in his stead. And he wouldn't have told him you know, actually, I was happy where I was before in the enemy territory. You take a person and you're trying to drag them back to God because you love them. You're trying to drag them into a relationship with God because you love them. But their hearts are closed. The only way they'll accept God is on their terms and, in essence, only if God bows to them because they're not going to bow to God under those circumstances. And so he goes, you know what? Why do you even have me in here? The clubs are so much more fun than this. Getting wasted is so much more fun than this. You guys like don't run around and have sex. You guys don't run around and get drunk. What do you do for fun? What we're doing right now. I'm having the time of my life. I love following the Lord. I love being in His Word. I love being in prayer. I love worshiping Him in song. I love the fact that I can feel His pleasure and know that I'm delighting Him. Not because of what I do. It is the fruit of a heart that loves Him. The action has a habit of following. But here's a guy here. It's all about himself. It's all about his ego and his entitlement. Now, therefore, he says in the rest of verse 32, let me see the king's face. But if there's iniquity, if he really thinks something's wrong with me, let him execute me. Talk about chutzpah. He is so confident that his dad will do nothing. He challenges him to act. Have you ever had that happen? If God were really real, then make him do something right now. Oh, gosh. Well, who's in control on that particular conversation? Have you ever been in a relationship with a line drawer? You know, a line drawer is like, if you really love me, you would, and they draw the line, whatever that is. 
have you learned? When you're in a relationship with a line drawer and you cross that line to prove it, they just come up with a new line. The problem with line drawers, they live by lines. You know, if you really love me, you do this. Well, if you really love me, you do this now. Well, now that you've done that, okay, that means you loved me yesterday, but today, here's the line for today. And the problem is when you say, God, if you're really real, you better do this. Save my grandma, do this. Don't let my 104-year-old grandma die. And God actually were to do it, there'll be another line for you to draw because you've already created a relationship where you're in control. The problem is entitlement, like in this case, Absalom actually believes he deserves the best of everything. And be that Geshur or Israel, he deserves the best of both worlds. Be it the camp of the Lord or the enemy's camp, it really doesn't matter. He just believes he deserves the best. Not because of character. Not because of anything other than the fact that his own ego says that he's above others. And because of that alone, he's... And so what happens is if I really believe that I deserve the best, then every person I look around, whether I'm consciously doing it or not, I believe that their job is to serve my desires, to please me. And the king now only has to see him on his terms, which include no admittance of wrong and no inheritance. No adherence to his lordship. So I look at it. If my dad thinks there's something wrong with him, then let him take care of it. Otherwise, get me to my dad. And unfortunately, there's restoration without repentance, but no real restoration without repentance. And fake repentance is not repentance at all. And that's what we see here. Verse 33, there's no real repentance. Just a dumb show. It says, Joab then sent to the king and told him, and when he had called for Absalom, he came to the king, bowed himself to the ground, his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. Absalom has public reinstatement without any personal repentance or remorse. His dad has said, you are now back where you belong. But here's the problem. He's really not. All that Absalom is doing is positioning himself. So hear me for a second. Ego plus entitlement. That is the mindset. By the way, for what it's worth, I challenge you to, to look at Isaiah 14 when we see the way the enemy fell. Because in Isaiah, it's easy to remember with Isaiah and Ezekiel because one is double the other. Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. They tell us the fall of Satan. And what you find with the fall of Satan is Satan goes, check me out. That's where he starts his ego. And then he's like, I will. You know, why do you get all the glory? I'll get it now. I'll sit on the sides of the north. I will be like the Most High. And when you realize, he starts becoming entitled. So should it, should it surprise us that that's the tools that he uses to pull a person down? So look at what he does then in chapter 15. After this had happened, after what? After this public reinstatement of Absalom. After this had happened, that Absalom provided himself with chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. What does that look like? What that looks like is somebody really important. That's what it looks like. Now, what would that look like today? We just saw uh, my, my daughter, pray for her, my 13-year-old. She is so driven by, she's fascinated by brilliant criminals. You know, and she's like, so how do they pick that lock? And how do they, it kind of concerns me. And how do you kill someone without leaving a mark? I'm like, why in the world would I tell you that? I sleep in the same house as you. But we saw the story of this 13-year-old con man. 
And it was interesting. I mean, this guy, in his, he started, by the way, by setting up a website, selling uh, flat screen TVs, for which most of which he never even sent to anyone. Sent out a couple enough to try to keep his nose clean. He was 13 years old. The guy made 10 grand. And then, when they started, people, police started getting hot on him for that, and he started getting these things, you know, these kind of things were starting to close in, he kind of shut that down, started selling some more things. I think the next was stationary, and then after stationary, it was dice and vacuums. So he was like, so what's the big deal? I'm like, what's the big deal? I'm like, imagine, it's, by the way, it's Christmas, because December was when he made 10,000 pounds in one month. Imagine, I'm like, hey, let's buy mom that, you know, that, that vacuum she's really wanted because of Dyson. Wow, that'd be amazing. And then it never shows up. She's like, oh, yeah, you don't want to mess with mom on her vacuum. You know, I mean, the whole point was is that even this 13-year-old, and I'm talking to a 13-year-old when this is happening, and the, the people who are speaking and making commentary say that he was intellectually mature enough to know how to make this system work for him, but he wasn't emotionally mature enough to see how it was really going to hurt everyone. It was interesting because I was actually kind of seeing some of that lived out in front of me. But as he continued to go from one thing to the next, it was amazing the smoke screens he left. And, but the way that he started it after he went public was he went and he started hiring limos. He rented big uh, offices in Chelsea. I think there was another one. Uh, I'm not going to remember where it was. Oh, it was Richmond because I knew it was someplace else where the wealthy sort of reside. And I mean, these places that are obviously kind of have a reputation for being fairly wealthy. And then he would hire limos and he'd have these limo drivers take him all of these places. He wound up owing one, five grand, another, he owed like 20 grand. I'm like, when do you actually start saying, I'm not going to drive you again until you pay me? But somewhere, I mean, it was, he racked up bills over a hundred thousand pounds because just in his transportation alone, because he just said that public transportation was for the commoner. And he just, but, the, but the thing that amazed me was that he convinced so many people he was important simply by buying expensive suits and making sure that he was always pulling up in a limo. The reason I say that is that's exactly what's happening here with Absalom. He's just making himself look really important. Now I remind you, he was the fallen guilty son of a king who fled by on his own but his dad pulled him back into things but not without but not with any repentance and so what is he doing the first thing is he wants to make sure you know he's important that can happen in the church simply by somebody demanding that they have a title when somebody says are you the pastor i would tell you i'm not the pastor here i'm a pastor there are genuinely guys in here that in some cases are doing a better job pastoring certain groups than i am Praise the Lord for that. I don't want to be the pastor. If there's one great shepherd, it's never going to be me. That's Jesus. And if you stop at me, you stop short. I mean, I am in the sense a pub burger compared to the great five guys that the Lord, I mean, it's a really sorry example, but for some of us that really means something, you know, that it's like this, you know, what is this compared to this amazing thing? And the reason I say it's just, at best, it's a sorry substitute, but it is not the same thing. And, 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 but this guy is really starting, and what he is doing is, and understand, he's just going to, all he's going to do is he's going to refocus, and then he's going to recruit, and then in essence, he's going to ship off. He's going to then deploy. He's going to refocus, and then he's going to recruit, and then he's going to deploy. And that's his whole methodology. How does he get people to refocus? He uses two tools. You know what the two tools are? Ego and entitlement. Because that's what worked with him, and because he knows it works with him, he knows it'll work with you. 
So he shows himself important. And if he shows himself important, then you know what happens next. People are going to want to be near him. Have you ever heard about those guys on the YouTube that actually went and hired a bunch of bodyguards and did the same thing and then ran into a crowd with a bunch of bodyguards around them and all that and everyone was asking for their autographs? Because people didn't even know. I'm like, oh, I love you. And they're like, oh, yeah, what movies have you seen? And, oh, I've seen all your movies. Of course, they haven't, they've done none. But it's like, oh, can I just have your autograph? Can I get a picture? And everyone's selfieing with these guys because they've hired themselves out in essence. Because people want to be around important people. Why do we want to be around important people? Because somehow we don't feel we are. And if we don't feel like we're important in the eyes of God, we're definitely going to play this fool. And if you cannot get justified at the cross and realize how important you are there where God would actually rather die than live without you, there is no place in the universe that you're going to feel validated. So he sets himself up to live large. And it tells us then, it happened that Absalom provided himself chariots and horses to run before, uh, but before him that will definitely take and refocus you. He takes the spotlight. He puts himself in the middle of the who's who. Because if he's there to recruit, he must first have your focus. Now Absalom, verse 2, would rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. This is him now recruiting. Remember, by this point, everyone knows who he is. Oh, you're the guy with the entourage. You're the guy that looks like you just stepped out of a rap video. What is that? That's an entourage. It's like, you know what you are? You're a guy that actually just glued a bunch of pieces of fake gold to the front of your teeth and you rented a car. And you got a bunch of girls who would never have sat next to you, but since you're paying them, they're going to put on their bikinis and stand out in the cold for whatever they're paid. So they're not trying to be mean or cynical. The whole point is, it's amazing how people will buy it. If you don't believe that, all you have to do is watch any sporting event and watch the, car- the cartoons. Actually, it's pretty close. The commercials that happen. Because you know what? It's like some sort of you know, overweight, middle-aged kind of guy that's sort of sitting on a couch and he's there all by himself watching. But he cracks open whatever the pub lager is or the beer or whatever the thing is. And then like bikini-clad gals pop out of the telly. Now, we all recognize that's nonsense. But there's something in the back of their heads that go, some guy, because they assume that a lot of guys go, oh, that's kind of me. I don't, yeah, except I'm younger and better looking. But they're sitting there watching it just the same. And if I get this beer, girls are going to jump out of my telly. Well, that tells you that the idea is, man, I just, I just want that. I remember when they interviewed MTV back in its heyday and they said, we don't influence the youth, we own them. You ask a lot of people today in the media that are actually in the media, they'll tell you, we don't actually report the news, we dictate it. And the reason I say that is, it's easy to recruit when you've made yourself important and people believe it. Do you remember Oasis, the band? Do you know when they became real popular? It was when they started telling everyone they were the best band that has ever been since the Beatles. But they lived it and they genuinely acted like they believed it. But the problem is you have two guys that sooner or later are going to believe that they're that great and you can't put two guys like that in the same room for long. Like Absalom and his sons. So this is how Absalom starts to recruit. First, he starts to show himself as the important guy. And then it says, so it was. He stood at the the gate early. Whenever anyone who had a lawsuit came to the king for a decision. Now understand, initially, that every tribe had leaders in their tribe. And if they couldn't get that worked out, they would actually go to a priest. But if they couldn't even get it worked out with a priest, the final say was the king. 
So in essence, they were the sort of, you know, David was in essence the Supreme Court. They were the law magistrates. They were the top of the crown court. And so in all of that, these people are in essence queuing up. Whoever had a lawsuit would come to the king for a decision and Absalom would call to him and say, listen, he'd say, hey, what city are you from? And he would say, wherever. And then he'd say, oh, you're servants from such and such a tribe of Israel. And Absalom would say to him, look, your case is good and it's right. Mm. But there is no deputy of the king to hear you. Notice what he starts with. Hey, where are you from? That's important. I want you to know you're important to me. Oh, well, tell me about your case. Oh, that, that is an important case. Wow, look how important you are. And then you know where that goes? It goes from that to criticizing. From that to making it sound like... He's going to play on your sense of fairness. It's like, wow, how long you been waiting here to get this court trial? Days? I mean, one king, how many trials can he see in the course of a day? Well, how long have you been waiting? That is a really long time to wait for justice. But I remind you, Absalom was not waiting for justice. Absalom became his own justice. He became, think about it, isn't that kind of what happened? He became a vigilante. Instead of waiting for God to step in and pronounce proper judgment, he just decided to take matters. He was tired of waiting for this thing to come out right. So he was going to make it happen himself. So he understands that and he's pitching that to everyone else. Do you see how important you are? And if you see how important you are, then aren't you entitled to a better trial, a quicker trial, a speedier trial? Aren't you entitled to get your justice? Aren't you entitled to get this to happen? Don't you realize that? Do you realize how this destroys marriages? Do you realize how this destroys friendships? Do you realize how this destroys churches? Because what you have is you're like, don't you realize how important you are? Why don't they recognize how important you are? That is so unfair. And they come up with two basic things. Isn't the king aloof? Isn't he un- He should be more involved in your life. I bet he doesn't even know your name. He has no clue where you're from. I do. Look at how important that is. Look at how important you are. And clearly the king doesn't. The king, the king doesn't care. That's the other thing. He obviously is uninvolved and he doesn't care. And that's the same thing the enemy is going to say to you. It's like that trial you're going through, that struggle you're having problems with, that challenge that stares you in the face, that sin that you still can't seem to get past, that area that seems like it's so on top of you, it's like a mountain and you're getting crushed, and the enemy goes, you know, God's not even watching. He doesn't care. You know, if God really cared, He'd clearly step in by now. You better take matters into your own hands, don't you think? But that's not what he's saying. He's saying, he he does that and then he goes, oh, look at verse 4. Oh, that I were made judge in the land. Oh, then everyone who has a suit or a cause could come to me and I would give him justice. Don't you see how unfair this is right now? Has anyone ever come up to you and told you how they got the raw end of the deal, but they were the guilty party? Has there ever been anyone? Have you ever been that person yourself? Where you knew that you were the sinner or at least party to the sin, but somehow in party to the sin, you don't want to think about that. Somehow you just feel like it's just not fair. Well, what are you entitled to as a guilty party? 
We live in a world, let's face it, where often the victim is more victimized as the actual perpetrator actually gets all kinds of rights. Now, I'm not trying to to just criticize. The bottom line is, is that as Christians, we have to trust the Lord is going to make this thing work out. I trust in God's sovereignty. I mean, when someone stole from you in the Old Testament and they were ultimately caught, they had to restore fourfold for what they took. Fivefold if it was your ox. In other words, if they stole stuff from your house, it would have been fourfold. If it was your car, they had to restore fivefold. The best thing that could have happened was someone stole from you. You'd be like, wow, really sorry that you took my clunker, but now I'm getting myself a Jeep. Now, the reason I say that is, is that in the end of it all, the guy who did wrong had to make restitution and the victim was actually compensated. I mean, that's the way it's supposed to be in a perfect world anyways. But what he's doing is he's playing into this, don't you think this is unfair? So unfair the way I'm being treated or the way you're being treated? Because the way that they recruit is to play into your ego and then they play into your entitlement. You are entitled to more than this. I happen to know a better place. Oh, that better place, by the way, is... Oh, yeah, it's me. It's me. I will be the one that will help you here. I mean, can you believe the leadership and what they're doing? Clearly, the leadership's a bunch of bozos. I mean, you know, and I remind you, this is his dad he's talking about, the one who extended his heart and restoration here. And when he extended that restoration, what was clear is Absalom had no interest on taking his terms, but it looked like he did. He stuck his face down in front of everyone so that everyone could say, well, poor Absalom, he really tried to make it right. But what's clear is he's not. And the way you see it is, he's recruiting. So as he do, as he recruits, and that's what we see here, he gets them to refocus on him, then he recruits, and then he deploys. It says in verse 5, So it was, Whenever anyone who came down to bow to him, that he would put out his hand. Now, I remind you, he's made himself to be very important, that he would take him, it says here, take him and kiss him. Do you realize what that says? Is oh my goodness, this royal really cares about me. Imagine, and by the way, I'm only saying this is hypothetical. I am in no way inferring this is true because I don't believe it to be. But imagine, if you will, that Will and Kate really wanted to take the throne for themselves. So what they did is they started making public appearances where they're like, you know what? Let me hear you. Oh, it's such a shame you're really not getting real justice. You don't care. And then they were like taking selfies with everyone and inviting you over to dinner and they're giving you big hugs. And you're like, check it out. Here I am hanging out with Will and Kay. How cool is that? I mean, you could see how easy that would be for them to start swaying the hearts of people. Well, that's what Absalom's doing. And the reason is they're clearly very high profile and they're clearly royals. So here's a guy, and he's like, you know, you're offering him your hand to handshake in essence, and he's like, brothers don't shake hands, brothers got a hug, and they're just, give me here. You know, and it's, it's clear here that though he seems, and you know what the crazy part is, at a moment like this, could you imagine the conversation we would have about him? What an amazing person. You know, I mean, he's caring, and he's gentle, and he cares about people, he cares about us. Look at the time he spends with us. They have no idea that he's recruiting. And to be honest, sometimes people recruit, I don't even think they recognize what they're doing. Well, I'm not telling you don't care. I'm telling you that we never do it at the expense of our king. 
That's the point. So it says, in this manner, verse 6, Absalom acted toward all Israel, came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Now you are aware of the fact that to steal means you are taking something that doesn't belong to you. It is not rightfully yours. And Absalom, those hearts of those people do not legally, if you will, belong to Absalom, but Absalom has taken them himself. And I go, hmm, he's come to steal. Does that sound like anyone else in Scripture? In John 10.10, Jesus tells us the enemy comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But the good news is Jesus doesn't end there. He says, but I have come that you would have life and life more abundant. So listen. Ultimately, what he's done is he's refocused, he's recruited, and he's deployed. It says then in verse 7, it came to pass after 40 years that Absalom said to the king, please let me go to Hebron to pay a vow which I made to the Lord. By the way, it's interesting how many times in a, such, a, such a rebellion, such a mutiny that you bring the Lord in as if somehow he was, he's actually part of it when he really isn't. For your servant took a vow, of, a vow while I was at Geshur in, in, in Syria, saying, if the Lord indeed brings me back to Jerusalem, then I'll serve the Lord. Well, this is, this is the weirdest way to serve the Lord I've ever seen. And so the king said to him, go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. Then Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel. I remind you, there's all these people who have been planted now all over talking about how amazing Absalom is. And they said, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom reigns in Hebron. In other words, what you're saying is, David is no longer my king. This is my king. He has sent spies around everywhere to say, listen, from this point on, when you hear the trumpet, you say, I pledge allegiance to the new king. That's what you're saying. And Absalom went then, with Absalom went 200 men invited from Jerusalem, and they went along innocently. They didn't know anything. So there are people, by the way, who will get caught up in this whole thing completely innocently, and then they're going to be stuck. Then Absalom sent for Ahithophel the Gilonite. Now, that was David's counselor, but it was also Bathsheba's grandfather from the city of Gilo. While he offered sacrifices and the conspiracy grew strong, for the people with Absalom continually increased in number. Last couple verses. It says, Now a messenger came to David then and said, The hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. And David knows what that means. What that means is his own son wants to kill him and take his throne. That's what it means. Imagine a son of the king wanting the king dead. Hmm, that sounds like an interesting story. A thousand years later, we'll see something like that when they say that the children of the kingdom, would, by the way, is what the religious leadership in Jesus' day would call themselves. So David said to all of his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise, let us flee, or we shall not escape from Absalom. Remember, he's still his, son's dad, or his, dad, he's still his dad's son. Which means he's got to be somewhere in all. There's a fighter in him. 
Make haste to depart, lest he overtake us suddenly and bring disaster upon us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. David's like, we are in no position right now to fight this kid. And how could you imagine having a child and then actually having to deal with the emotional aspect of what do I do at this moment? And David, interestingly enough at this moment, his first thought is, I don't want you guys getting hurt in this family business. I need to get you all out of this thing. We need to get out of here because he's going to attack this city. And he doesn't care about you guys. The reason he does is because he knows it hurts me. And let me say this, beloved. You've got to hear this with your heart. Please, please, please hear this with your heart. The only reason that you are in, in any way on the enemy's radar, the only reason why you have any importance to the enemy is that he knows something better than you do. And what the enemy knows better than you do is he knows how much God loves you. And he knows how much God loves you so much that he knows that the best way to hurt God is to hurt you. He knows that better than you do. He knows that my father cannot stop thinking about you. He knows that my father is infatuatedly, completely obsessed in love with you. And he knows that the only way to really hurt him is not to go after God himself. He knows he doesn't stand a chance, but if he could go after you. And the best way to do it is to get you to hurt you, because if you can hurt you, then who does God use? How does God step into that? And the enemy knows that God loves you that much. And if we knew that God loves us that much, as much as he knows that, we would recognize how stupid it is to follow the enemy. Now, in a situation like this, what's clear is the enemy still uses those tools today. And what he does is he gets you making it all about you. And then he makes you feel like you're completely entitled to things. And the moment you feel like you're entitled, then God's not fair. God's not fair enough. He's not involved enough. God is not early enough. God's not timely enough or punctual enough. Clearly, you know, that because you've decided how God's supposed to act. I've decided how God's supposed to act. And the moment I decide that, then God doesn't fit into my character. I'm angry at God. The one who created me, redeemed me, saved me, and sent his son to die on the cross for me. How insane is that? But at that moment, I feel like it makes perfect sense. And then in that, I start going, man, that king. And whether we know it or not, our hearts stand up and start pledging allegiance to his enemy. How horrible is that? But let me tell you the good news is that tonight our eyes have been opened and challenged. And we can go and call it church and still make it all about us. We can talk about how it's how you're going to be the blessed one and you're the chosen one and you are and then we'll go into entitlement. You are entitled to your blessings and you just tack in Jesus' name at the end of it all and that bill is paid. And you can just expect the car and expect the house in Chelsea and expect and expect your football team to win every game from this point forward. So start playing down your bets. You know, it's amazing how you can go to places and they're called churches and it still does the same thing that Absalom is playing here. And in the end of it all, when it doesn't, when all of a sudden that cold doesn't go away when the oil's on your head, and when all of a sudden the marriage doesn't get healed instantly, that sin still becomes a challenge for a period of time. We become angry with God, and then they start telling you about how we have to forgive God. Could you imagine that? Forgive God of what? He does no wrong. But you need to recognize. You're like, God, you said that you're only going to give me good things, but we've dictated to God what's a, what a good thing is. Could cancer ever be a good thing? I would say yes. 
Because in God's eyes, the most important thing is your relationship with him. And if that's what it takes to get you right with him, he would do it. But I've learned this. If God can steer you with a feather, he will not use a sledge. Because he doesn't have to. If God can move you with a whisper, he doesn't have to shout. But I warn you, if God has to shout, it's never pretty. My God never uses excessive force. So when my God throws me to the mat and tells me that I have to stay in bed for something, I'm like, wow, am I that sick that I haven't been listening? And I'll be honest, the answer is, yes, I am. I am a doofus. But here's the good news. My God loves me. And the only reason he's doing it is so that I could be completely right with him. And the same with you. But I will never be right with him if I'm full of myself and then I feel like I'm entitled to just dictate what God should give me. Because there's no humility and there's no surrender. There's no vehement desire, no clearing of myself, no indignation towards my sin. At best, I have a sorrow that is a worldly sorrow and that leads to death. And that's the best case scenario. But my God took all of my sin and he put it on his son and he died on a cross for me so that I could be made right with him. And if that was what he was willing to do for me and someone says, your God doesn't care, they have no clue. And if when I was still a sinner, Christ died for me, when I was still his enemy, he died for me, when I was still in my own heart driven by the prince of the power of the air and he died for me then, then you can't tell me that my God doesn't know timing. My God is never late. But I've also learned he's never early. But Jesus even said to his brothers, for you, any time is right. But he had a time. To Mary and Martha, my brothers dying, come. And it says, because Jesus loved them, he waited. He waited. Why didn't he just do it then? Because he wanted to do it at a time when it was clear that only he could do it. And we tell God, God, you have to do it by this, whatever that is. And we told him, because if it doesn't happen by then, it is done. It's dead. And God goes, death doesn't intimidate me. I can raise that. Don't tell me about a deadline. Keep your eyes on me and listen. I know what I'm doing. So tonight as we go to prayer, let me just ask you, and I'm asking me as I'm listening to this, how much of me is, how much Absalom is alive in me right now? Where I'm still making it about me. And I start looking around and start telling I'm entitled. To what? Tell me what I'm entitled to. I'm entitled to hell. I've properly earned that. But I want to thank the Lord that He's not giving me that. I do find it interesting that Absalom did not recruit from the enemy land. He didn't go up to Geshur to get his army. He actually took from the king's camp. Don't you find that interesting? And you don't want to do that here. But tonight, what if we laid down the Absalom in each of us? We said, God, destroy, overcome, claim total victory, conquer, 
part that wants to stand against you. The part that's in rebellion to you. The part that fights your lordship. It says, hey, I'm happy to have you serve me, but this king thing I'm having a problem with. Jesus doesn't say, if you just confess me as Savior, we're good. But that we confess him as Lord. And that's fundamental. So tonight as we pray, and will you pray with me in this, that God would do exactly that. Conquer the Absalom in us. Pray with me, would you please? God, I confess to you that Absalom's dwell and thrive in each of us if we're not careful. And I just speak for myself to say that, man, when when something happens and it just seems so unfair, I tend to take my eyes off of you and trust that you really are sovereign and you know what you're doing. And I know you do inherently. Sometimes I tend to focus more on me at a moment like that. And I feel pain. And when I feel pain, I want to see that pain rectified. And I recognize my mind is way too small to understand eternal justice. To understand how you can actually make sure that this that all sin is punished and yet still bring sinners to repentance, to still see them restored. But I recognize for me to demand you to do things on my terms, there is no repentance at all there. It is in essence me recruiting you into my camp. And I recognize as a pastor, you call us to do something similar. To not, well, we, we seek to refocus too, but in a way, Lord, where what we seek to do is, is really to draw people to you, not to us, but to you. To engage you, to others to you. To engage them through the cross. To engage them through the gift, Father, of your Son that, that paid for all of our sin and rose again. And as we seek to engage them to you, then we seek to equip them. Not to recruit them for our purposes, but to equip them so that we can enroll them to your will, not to ours. Because it just isn't about us. It's about you. And you are so brilliant. I'm not going to even for a moment pretend that I understand your ways, but rather I trust your character, your heart. I know, even when there are billions of things happening around me that I don't understand, I know that you are good and that you are brilliant and that you are the Almighty. And that's all I need to know. Because in that I know that because you are Almighty, I know that there is nothing too hard for you. And because I know that you are good, I know that you will do what is necessary. And because I know that you are brilliant, the most brilliant, I know you'll know when to do it and how to do it. So instead of me figuring you out, I want to walk by faith. 
And I just want to give a moment in silence to every one of us for those people that we know that have harmed us or have injured us or in some way have offended us to what we felt like it wasn't fair. Tonight, God, in this room, deliver us from becoming an Absalom to that situation right now. So, Lord, as you put people's, people's names or faces in our hearts and minds, Lord, we want to lay them back down to you and say, God, take these things from us now so that we could walk out of here as humble servants, Lord. So for a moment here, even in the middle of this prayer, as we get quiet, if the Lord bring anyone to your mind that you feel you've been treated unfairly by or that they've recruited you into their unfairness, lay that down before the Lord right now and let God cleanse you from that. Let's do that right now. Forgive us for the anger and bitterness, God, in places we don't understand. When we recognize that we are being forgiven of, of infinitely more in our own lives in the ways that we have gone against you. We release these things to you now. These people, these situations, some they may be continual and chronic pain. Some there may be really deep hurt. But you who forgave the world and live inside of us as Christians can forgive through us. So we pray you cleanse us of that bitterness and that anger and that resentment because we recognize those are all things that look like Absalom. And we don't want to look remotely like him. So get our attention off ourselves and these individuals who make us think of ourselves and the pain we feel and get them on you and cleanse us now. Purge from our souls these pains, these regrets, these angers, these injustices that we cling to and fill that vacancy with faith and a peace that comes from knowing that vengeance is yours and that you are good, the most good, the most brilliant and almighty. Jesus, we confess that you died on the sin for all of our nastiness and you taught us to, for, to say to forgive others even as we forgive those who trespass against us. So, Make us those who genuinely forgive those who trespass against us, not just trespass against you. And tonight, make us people who before you are not setting boundaries and standards that is if we have a right to you, but rather in humility we lay our lives down before you as our King. And we just humbly ask... Make us healthy in you, in our hearts and spirits and minds. Make us healthy in you. That we would be the people you call us to be.
free us from any Absalom within us or any influence from Absalom's in us. As we're yours. In Jesus' name. Amen.